Please take your Bible and turn with me in the book of Psalms to the 71st Psalm. Perhaps you're familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you have read biographies about this great man. Others of you have simply read his own writings, the most popular of which in German is Nachfolge, which simply means following after. It's translated into English as the cost of discipleship. It's a tremendous expose of what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says about the truly righteous person. The righteous person lives for future generations. And that is so true. It's so scriptural, that's why it's so true. This morning we're going to look at two verses in the book of Psalms 71, verses 17 and 18. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow along in whichever version you have with you today. Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. What does this text of Scripture teach us about the characteristics of a truly righteous person who lives for future generations? There are five things I see in these two verses that we need to consider today. If we want to be people whose life counts, not just for time, but forever, we will pay close attention and learn from these verses of Scripture about the characteristics of the person who makes an impact forever because that person lives not simply for his or her own self or own generation, but for future generations. The first evidence or idea here as far as what constitutes a truly righteous person, is that the truly righteous person, the person who lives for future generations, is a person who is God-centered and other-centered rather than self-centered. Six times in these two verses, there is either a direct or indirect reference to God. Six times in two verses of Scripture. We've read them. There's no need to point them out again. And what happens when we are God-centered is that we will be other-centered as well. We will follow what the Bible says in the book of Philippians 2. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Timothy, the Apostle Paul's son in the faith, was sent by Timothy to the Philippians, and he introduced Timothy to the Philippians in his letter to them in a very telling way. He said about Timothy, his son in the faith, he said, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He was like Paul in that. Paul is like Christ in that. And people who are living for future generations are people who take that kind of interest in other people because they are God-centered people. It's not about them. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, makes this statement. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord for your sakes. They preached Christ, Paul and his traveling companions. Jesus was the focal point of everything they did In everything which they taught, he was the central figure. And consequently, they preached Christ Jesus as Lord for the sakes of the Corinthians. Do you see how impossible it is for us to be God-centered, to be Christ-centered, without being other-centered, caring about those that the Lord brings into our pathway? It's possible for us to preach ourselves or preach our church or preach our brand of Christianity, instead of preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. Here's the second thing which is true about people who live for future generations. In the first place, what have we learned? They're God-centered, 
Other-centered, not self-centered. Here's the second thing. They have an uncommon confidence. And it's not what we would call self-confidence. We've already established the fact that a person who is a person who seeks to impact future generations is God-centered, not self-centered. So let's look at this text beginning with verse 17. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth and I still declare your wondrous deeds. Now, look, if you will, at verse 5 of Psalm 71 because it helps us to understand this author and his viewpoint and how we can be such a person who has confidence. In verse 5 of Psalm 71, the Bible says, For you are my hope, speaking of God, O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. From his youth, whoever the human author of this psalm is, we do not know. Could have been David. It has a lot of similarities to the psalms which are attributed to him. It could have been he. It could have been someone else. We don't know. But what we do know is this individual had confidence instilled in him as a youth. Now, let's pause here. And think about Timothy again. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul talks about how from infancy, not just from his youth, but from infancy, he was brought up on the Scriptures, the Word of God. He was taught through his grandmother Lois, who had an uncommon faith, and his mother Eunice, and they used the Scripture as the basis for teaching Timothy. And all that conspired to make him a young man of confidence as he grew. And it's true for us. It's true for this psalmist. God is the confidence of the person who is taught by God. It's never too early to begin to teach a person about the Lord, to teach that person the Scripture. And where the confidence comes in is Our faith grows as we hear the Word of God. That's what Scripture says about itself. And if you are a student of the Bible, I'm not talking about a scholar. I'm talking about a person who comes before the Lord regularly and opens the book. And you come for the purpose of hearing what He has to say to you and of adjusting your life where it needs adjusting to His will. You understand the confidence that comes in knowing that our God is not a man that He should lie. Or a son of man that he should repent? Has he said and will he not do it? Has he promised and will he not fulfill it? So that really instills confidence in us. God was this man's confidence. And God is our confidence. If we are men and women of confidence based upon what God has taught us, then we're going to be able to impact future generations. God the Father, of course, is our teacher. He teaches us in two ways. The most obvious is through the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed, the Bible says, and is useful for teaching. We can just stop right there, but it goes on. Correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So the Lord has given us the whole scope of Scripture. And remember, when Paul wrote those words to Timothy, his son in the faith. There was no New Testament, as we call it. He was writing with reference to the Old Testament when he was speaking in the Scriptures. So the Old Testament, the Scripture, the Word of God, which we know as the Old Testament, also testifies to Jesus. Christ is the central figure. The Gospel is even in the Old Testament. Let's stop here just a moment. We know several things which the Bible teaches us about ourselves before we come to Christ. For instance, the Bible says in the Old Testament, quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no human being on earth who is inherently righteous. We come into this world with a sinful nature. And we need someone else to make us righteous. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, 
And I'm sure that Timothy's grandmother and mother taught him both of these verses from the Old Testament as they were teaching him the gospel from the scriptures. It says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments before a holy God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Even the best effort I can make or you can make to put ourselves right with God falls short of the glory of God. But there is another verse in the Old Testament that gives us great hope. It's quoted by Paul, by the way, and others in the New Testament. It's found in Genesis chapter 15, 6, when what God says to Abraham gives us great hope of overcoming our unrighteousness. Because the Scripture says that God spoke to him, and Abraham believed him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He became righteous, that is Abraham, as did David, as did Timothy, as did Paul, as have most of us here, God willing. We have become righteous not because of our good works, but because of what Christ has done for us. And the scripture says that God made him, namely Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul, among other things, describes Jesus as our righteousness. He teaches us through his word. Do you love the word of God? Unbelievable. I mean, it is so rich. It is eternal. It has the capacity to actually make new people out of us. The Spirit of God comes and exercises His power through the Word of God. And we are born again by the living and abiding Word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. That's grounds for confidence, isn't it? In the nature of God, in the Word of God, which is flawless. There's another way that the Father teaches us that's not often mentioned, and that is through suffering. In Psalm 119, verse 67, the psalmist writes these words. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He was doing his own thing before he suffered. But then the affliction, instead of separating him from God, instead of putting him in a position of adversary to God... Blaming God for all that was happening that was negative in his life, it drew him closer to the Lord. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. In the 71st verse of that same Psalm 119, the same writer goes on to say this, It is good that I was afflicted because I have learned your statutes. In other words, his affliction put him in a position to really want to know the Lord more fully. And then in the 75th verse, this sort of knocks people off their feet, takes the breath away the first time they read it and see it. I don't know how many times I had read Psalm 119 and not seen that part of the psalm in conjunction with the two other verses which I mentioned a moment ago. But in the 75th verse of the 119th Psalm, the Bible says, In faithfulness you have afflicted me, O Lord. The Lord brought difficulty, allowed it to come into his life, in order that he might grow in his walk with God. And here's what's important that we often overlook. We need to beg God's pardon, really for not giving him his due honor and recognizing that he is the one who knows the end from the beginning in our lives. And he is the one who can take things that are lousy that enter our lives and transform us by the way in which we deal with those difficulties in dependence upon him. Believing what the Word of God says That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And, by the way, in the next verse, which is 
rarely referenced when quoting Romans 8:28 in verse 29. The purpose is obvious. Here's the purpose. That we might be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if I may, I want to add something that the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus in this regard. He learned obedience through what He suffered. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Psalm 119, doesn't it? It was good for me that I was afflicted. I have learned to obey you, Lord. Jesus, who was perfect, actually understood that. What about Joseph? As we read from Psalm 105, this little insert in that wonderful psalm about Joseph. A famine was sent on the land of Palestine, as we might call it, the Canaan, the Holy Land. It was sent upon that land. And the whole purpose behind that was so that God could move through the jealousy of Joseph's brother and the pride of the 17-year-old boy, Joseph, telling his brothers that they and their parents were going to bow down to him. Very imprudent to say that to your ten older brothers. It'll always get you in trouble. And it got them in trouble, but the Scripture is very clear. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? God did. God did. And the Scripture says that he was afflicted when he got there. The Egyptians afflicted him. His brothers had begun by afflicting him. Undoubtedly, the Midianite slave traders had afflicted him. Potiphar's wife afflicted him. When he got in prison, I'm sure some of the inmates, because he was not of their ilk, he was from another country, they probably afflicted him. Listen to what the Word of God says in Psalm 105. Listen again. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. And the phrase or the word he himself literally means his soul was laid in irons until the time that His word came to pass. This is referencing the interpretation of the dream he gave to his brothers. It was from the Lord, wasn't it? The word of the Lord tested him, is what the text says. And the literal translation of the word tested is refined him. You know what refinement refers to? It's the process in antiquity, even to this day, of taking ore... And refining it so that the pure metal of gold or silver or other precious stones or metals can be separated from the slag so that there can be purification. This is the purpose of God. And God teaches us through His Word, be sure. It's His primary tool of teaching. But He also teaches us through our suffering. And that is critical for understanding I've been reading a book on the subject of soul-keeping by a man who used to be a part of this church. His name is Howard Baker. And in that, he talks about one of the early church fathers whose name was Ignatius. Ignatius was a very learned follower of Christ, not just learned from the Scripture, but through his suffering in his life. And he was talking about what following Christ gives us. As we follow Jesus, we experience consolation. He consoles us in our trouble. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. Isn't that a great promise? And if we've come to Jesus, we understand the consolation of the Lord, do we not? But also he speaks of the desolation that accompanies following the Lord sometimes. When as you follow the Lord, all of a sudden it's as if the heavens are brass and your prayers don't seem to be Heard by the Lord. You cry out to the Lord. And sometimes that goes on for quite a while. Just like in Joseph's life. How long was it before the word that the Lord had given him, promising him that he would be the one who would actually be the Savior, in a sense, of the people of Israel? How long did that happen? Well, let's do the math. Thirteen years, he was either a slave or an inmate. 17 to age 30, the prime of a young man's life. And he was in that state. 
Then at least seven more years passed, because remember the famine occurred for seven years. Thirteen and seven is twenty, right? And then probably two or three more years, maybe until he was about forty. So let's just say forty, seventeen from forty, twenty-three years before the Lord's word came to pass. And it was difficult for him. In the book of Genesis, the story is told of how Joseph married after he was released from prison and after he was given a great position in the Egyptian empire. And he married the daughter of an Egyptian priest. They had two sons. Do you remember their names? Manasseh and Ephraim. Do you know what Manasseh means in Hebrew? It means He makes me forget. What's that saying? What's he talking about when he names his firstborn Manasseh? He makes me forget. This is what he's saying. I had harbored some bitterness. I had really wrestled with what had been done to me by my brothers when I did not mean any harm to them. I was only telling them what God had told me would happen to me and to them. In effect, I thought I was doing them a favor and I was honoring the Lord. But the Lord has shown me that that is not the way because the Lord is the one who sent me here. He's the one who paved the way for my being here. And you remember what he said to his brothers after their father had died? When they came to him begging mercy, it broke his heart because they did not understand who God was. And they did not understand that the Lord had a plan for him in his being sent there. And he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Please understand this, that the Lord uses difficulty after he gives us direction in his word. Many times he gives us difficulty. And that was hard. It was a place of desolation, I would imagine, for Joseph. I'm sure there were many nights he probably would have cried himself to sleep with a big lump in his throat because of the fact that he is in prison or a slave or both in a foreign land in a language he had not yet mastered where false gods were worshipped. Well, Jesus is God as well, isn't he? Certainly he is. And he is our teacher. In the story which is told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke of what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story, don't you? Where Jesus goes up on a mountain and he takes his three closest apostles. He takes Peter, James, and John. And then the Lord speaks to them in Luke 9.35. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one, listen to Him. Do you know the most important thing you can do, or I can do, if we're going to have a life that's lived for future generations, if our lives are going to matter, not just for time, but for eternity, is to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ, to listen to the Spirit of God, to listen to God the Father, and we find the capacity to do that in the Word of God. Let him who has ears to hear, Jesus was fond of saying, hear what the Spirit of God is saying to him or to her. It's said, and it's not absolutely verifiable, that of the five senses which you and I have, the last sense to go is the sense of hearing. Electroencephalograms have registered Activity of the brain when it appeared that the brain was dead. And they've seen some response to the brain when people are speaking to people who are in comas. And there seems to be some capacity to hear. And people who have been in comas have come out of comas and actually quoted verbatim things which were said to them by people while they were in the coma. The last sense to go is a sense of hearing as people progress toward death. Unfortunately, for many of us, it's the sense that we don't exercise properly 
in the meantime as we're moving toward the end of life. God wants us to have ears to hear what He has to say. The Bible says that He wakens us morning by morning to listen, to listen as a disciple, a follower, a lifelong learner of the Lord. So that's where our confidence comes from. How do we have this uncommon confidence? It's not self-confidence. It's confidence in whom? It's in the Lord, isn't it? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promises will teach us all things and bring to our remembrance everything that Jesus has said to us. And in fact, He has through the apostles and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit illuminates these things to us. Here's the third thing about people who live for future generations. What's the first one? God-centered, other-centered, not self-centered. Second one, confidence. Not self-confidence, but confidence in the Lord and His Word. Here's the third thing, and that is they are faithful people. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 6, we hear these words. Many a man declares his own trustworthiness, but a faithful man who can find. A faithful man, a faithful woman who can find. Look at what this man says in Psalm 71, the last line of verse 17. I still declare your wondrous deeds. When we're reading this, casually reading it, it's likely that we just skip right over the word still. But that's an important word. I still declare your wondrous deeds. In any stage of your life, you and I can still declare the wondrous deeds of God. I had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home, in a strong church. Had great Sunday school teachers when I was growing up. Went to RAs. Some of you are old enough and Baptist enough to remember the RAs and the GAs. Went to RAs in the middle of the week on Wednesday night. Learned Scripture. It was just a great environment in which to grow up. And the stage was set for me to come to know Christ as a boy. From my youth, this could be my personal testimony actually today. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth. And I still declare your wondrous deeds. Now, I don't put myself in the same category as this man. Because I do not declare the wondrous deeds of the Lord like he did. Undoubtedly, I don't. In my youth... However, I came to know the Lord and declared His wondrous deeds. If you're a young person, I don't know what you would use as a benchmark for being young. Let's say under 30. Let's just say that. Under 30. There aren't many of us in the room who are under 30, but there's some. You know, don't ever underestimate God's desire to use you to live for future generations. Don't ever do it. This is a great time in your life. Don't think you've got forever to live. You've got this time when your mind is sharp, your body is cooperating with you. You are able to trust the Lord and listen to the Lord, be taught by the Lord. And the words of Paul to Timothy resonate again in my heart from 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young but set an example for the brothers, all the brothers, all the believers. So as a young person, you can do this. Think about Joseph. I already mentioned he was only 17 when he was sent by the Lord to be the Savior, in a sense, of all of Israel. Jesus would not have been born if Joseph had not gone by God's direction, even though it was a bittersweet time for Joseph. What about David? He was probably a teenager when he was anointed the future king of Israel. And when he faced off with the giant Goliath and defeated the Philistines by killing that monster. What about Daniel? He and his companions probably in their teens. And by the way, he didn't stop as a teen, did he? He went all the way through his life. Maybe I'll refer to that later. Samuel, the boy living in the temple with the high priest Eli... God speaks to him. We don't know exactly how old he was. 
Maybe a preteen, perhaps. Not much older than that when the Lord enlisted him as a prophet. And the apostles. There is a terrific book, The Life and Teaching of Jesus Christ, by a man named James Stewart Stewart. The Stewarts are spelled differently, by the way. James S. Stewart. It's a tremendous book. And he suggests, based on his study of rabbinical activity in that era, that all the men who were chosen to be apostles, all twelve of them, were probably either in their late teens or their early twenties. It's amazing, isn't it? I was listening to David Jeremiah as I was driving to get something early last week. And as I was listening to him, he was talking about his study of revivals in the United States tracks back almost exclusively to a group of young people who got serious about their relationship to God and revival broke out. So, from his youth, he had declared the wondrous deeds of the Lord. And look what he goes on to say in 18, And even when I'm old and gray, oh God, do not forsake me. Now let's stop there just a moment. What does that tell us about him? He was not old at the time he wrote this, nor was he gray. He was in middle age. May I say, having passed through middle age, that it's the most difficult time in a man's life. I don't know about women, but it's the most difficult time in a man's life to continue his walk with God. Because as young men, we are told that we have things to achieve. And those things we are told we can't achieve, usually, even as Christians... When we adopt them, usually are selfish goals. Even if you're in the ministry, you can have selfish goals as a young man. Then at some point, it dawns on you, I'm not going to reach those goals. Whether they're monetary goals or relational goals or other kind of goals that you might have, I'm just not going to do that. So you go out and you break the bank and sell everything you've got to get a hot car, you know. And you get a membership at the gym, and you're way past helping by that point in your life. You might as well save your money and your time. (laughs) You look at your hairline, and it's receding. You begin to take note of the advertisements about hair transplants and toothpaste and all that sort of stuff, you know. And then you begin to try to attract another woman besides your wife if you're married. Because... It appeals to your ego. You're trying to get some affirmation in middle age. It's the toughest time. David was in middle age, probably about 50, when he fell into sin with Bathsheba. It's a tough time. But in middle age, you don't have to do that, guys. Are you hearing? You can follow the Lord. We have some middle-aged men in here. You can follow the Lord through that tough time. And you can lean on men who are old and gray. And you can learn from them. You can learn from their example. You can learn from their mistake, if they're honest with you, about the struggles they had in their middle age. But in old age, and I was going to get back to Daniel. Remember Daniel? Some scholars think he was in his 90s before his life ended. And what's he doing in his 90s if he lived that long? 80s at least. What's he doing? When a declaration is signed by the king of the Medes and the Persians that no one for 30 days can bow down and worship any other god except him, that is, the king of Persia, what does Daniel do? The same thing he's been doing for 70 or 80 years since he's been in exile in Babylon. He goes to his house, he opens the windows, which are pointed toward Jerusalem. He gets on his knees, and he doesn't pray a silent prayer. It doesn't say what kind he prayed, but I guarantee you it's not a silent prayer. It's a peon of praise to the Lord and thanksgiving to the Lord and petition to the Lord. In his old age, I wish time would allow us to go into some detail about a man named Polycarp, who was a bishop. He was the lead pastor in one of the churches in the first century. He was arrested and told to recant. If he didn't recant, he was going to be burned. He went to the stake and he was burned. But he signaled from the fire that his death was a bearable death. He said, 
I cannot. The last time he was asked, he said the same thing he had said previously. He said, said, for 80 and 6 years, my Lord has been faithful to me. Which means he came to Christ as a boy. 80 and 6 years, my Lord has been faithful to me. How can I, at this point in my life, deny him? Even when Polycarp and Daniel were old and gray, they still declared the wondrous deeds of God. And so can we. So we've seen three things that are true of people who are people whose lives impact future generations. What's the first thing? They're God-centered, not self-centered, therefore other-centered. What's the second thing? They are confident in God. What is the third thing? Yes, they are faithful people. Here's the fourth thing. They are visionaries seeing future generations of followers of Christ coming out of their lives. Look what he says again in verse 18. And even when I'm old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. How does that strike you? Especially the last line. Let's look at it again. Your power to all who are to come. Now, he knew he was going to die. He did. How could he make some sort of request to the Lord? Here's how he could do it. We go to 2 Timothy again and listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of others, I want you to transfer over to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Now, watch this. Paul, the first generation, to Timothy, the second generation, to faithful men, the third generation, to others. So, Paul had that vision. Everyone who makes a difference has that vision. And you and I should, if we haven't to this point, ask the Lord, Lord, would you give me a disciple? But Lord, not just one disciple. Please, Lord, give me disciples, not of my own making, but use me as a tool to reach people to the fourth generation. That's amazing, isn't it? I was reading an article years ago, and I kept it for today. I didn't know it would be today, but I kept it for today. And it's an article that was written about professional football players. That shouldn't surprise many of you. I'm a big sports fan, of course. And in that article, it talked about my favorite cowboy. I'm not talking about a real cowboy. I'm talking about a football cowboy, Jason Witten. And Witten was referenced as saying, if Kurt Warner had not been outspoken in his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know if I would have had the courage to be outspoken. Kurt Warner came along and mentored him. And then, this is what Kurt Warner said. He said, Reggie White mentored me. Do you know who Reggie White was? He is. He's still alive. He's in heaven with the Lord now. But he was arguably the greatest defensive end in the history of the NFL. And by the way, he's a graduate of the University of Tennessee. Also, he's a Tennessee ball. They could have used him yesterday, for sure. So, okay, follow Reggie White, Kurt Warner, Jason Witten, and then in this article, three names came up. Tim Tebow was one name, Colt McCoy, another name, and Sam Bradford, another name. Three quarterbacks who were drafted the same year in the first round. Amazing. Those three quarterbacks, two of whom were Heisman Trophy winners, and all three were in the running for the Heisman. And all of them referred back to Jason Witten and Kurt Warner. So you got four generations, right? Who's the first generation? Kurt Warner. Second generation? Whoa, excuse me. Reggie White. Sorry, Reggie. Reggie White. Then, who was second? Kurt Warner. Then Jason Witten. Then these three young men, who are great young men, all except for Tim, are still playing in the NFL. 
But here's another part of the story. The man who discipled me, discipled Reggie White. And his wife, Sarah, by the way. His name's never going to be written in a book about all that. But someone discipled him. And someone discipled him. And you and I can have that same sort of impact. We need to get a vision. Some of you say, I can't, I can't win a lot of people to Jesus. Well, look, you're not called to win a lot of people to Jesus. You're called to introduce one person to Christ. I have, if I get the full promise of God's Word, 70 years, in some cases 80. Let's say I live to be 80. I've got 13 years left. And I hope I keep my wits about me over those years. If I do, let's say the Lord grants me 13 more years. If I am used by the Lord to win one person to Christ between now and next year... Let's say the year begins today, October the 1st. By September 30th of next year, the Lord has granted me the grace to be a tool in His hand to lead someone to Jesus. And I have invested my life in Him over that course of time. And I do that for 13 years. And all those whom I disciple, I teach this principle to. And I keep exhorting them and encourage them to do this. And they do it. And they teach those whom they lead to Christ to do the same. In that 13-year period, 8,192 people would come to know Jesus. I would have only been directly involved in 13 of their lives. But the other 8,179 heard the story of Christ indirectly through me. We can do it. The time is drawing short. You can be used by God. If you know Jesus Christ, you have all the power you need to do it. It's His power. The power of the Holy Spirit. And it's through personal involvement. I wish we had time to dig into this deeply. I'm just going to make mention of two things in this regard. First of all, this personal involvement is seen in the life of Christ. He was personally involved in his apostles' lives in a way he was not in other people's lives. He ignored the masses many times to invest in a few men. One to one, there was one of the twelve that Jesus was especially connected with. And we know him as John. And some people say, well, yeah, John was Jesus' favorite. I don't think Jesus had favorites, but this is what I believe. And someone in my past said this, or I read it, I can't give credit where credit is due. Somebody else said it, but it's so true. Jesus does not have favorites, but Jesus does have intimates. And John was one who was intimate with Christ, not in a filthy way, But in the sense he was near him, he wanted to learn everything he could from him. He listened. He was transformed by Christ. And so it's not wrong for you or me to have people that we are closer to. If we disciple someone, that's what will happen. We will grow close to that person. And God will use you to change the world, perhaps, through that one contact. Believe me. It is possible. We've seen evidence of it in Scripture. We've seen evidence of it through looking at some things more recently. Well, let's look now at the last characteristic. And it's no surprise. They are finishers. People finish. It's easy to give up. There are a lot of opportunities as we follow Christ to quit. Lots of opportunities. When the things get so difficult... Remember what Jesus said, if they hated you, know that they have hated me before they hated you. They're going to persecute you, is what Jesus says. If you're going to follow me, you can't expect preferential treatment. It's going to be part of following me because the world hates you. Because they hated me. Because light exposes darkness in people's lives. But the characteristic is that people who live for future generations are finishers. They stay the course to the end. 
And where do we get that from this text? It's, uh, again, it's one of those words that could easily be overlooked. But it's very important. Verse 18. Even when I'm old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. Until. Paul said at the end of his life, the time of my departure has come. I have finished the course. I have fought the good fight. I have what? Kept the faith. Until, he said, I finish what you've given me to do. And that is characteristic of a person who lives for future generations. Did Jesus finish? He said twice in the last part of the book of John, 17. He says in his high priestly prayer to the Father, I have finished your work which you have given me to do. And then in 19 of John, he says, it is finished. He's talking about two different things. They're two sides of the same coin. So let's begin with the last one and come back to the first one. He says, it is finished. What was he saying? I have paid for the sins of mankind in full. I have redeemed mankind in potential by what I have done by dying on the cross and becoming the propitiation, the place of God's satisfaction of his wrath for sin. I have done that. I have become a curse by being hanged on a tree so that I could save mankind. Praise the Lord that he's finished. Jesus didn't quit. He finished. But over here in chapter 17, when he's talking about, I have finished the work, he was talking about the investment he made in the apostles. That's what he was talking about. That was his, that's why he could have died the moment he began his ministry. But he kept saying, don't tell people, don't tell people. Remember that? Does that ever confuse you a little bit? Don't tell people what I've done for you when he heals people. He wasn't saying that because he was afraid. He was saying that because he needed more time with the men whom he was discipling. That's why. And if you are on the ball, you will ask the Lord, Lord, help me to have more time so that I can do what you have created me to do in making disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, help me to do that. The name Stephen Akwari perhaps means nothing to you. If you're interested in marathoning, if you're interested in the history of the Olympics, you will know his name probably. In Mexico City, the Olympics were held in 1968. Seventy-five contestants began representing their nations. Only 57 finished the 42K run. Stephen Akwari was representing Kenya his home country. When he reached the 19K mark, his legs began to cramp. And soon thereafter, there was a logjam, as there often is when runners in the marathon are jockeying for position, and he took a spill and dislocated his knee and injured his shoulder when he fell. People thought it was over for him. The winner of these, this race There were 57 who finished the race. was a man from Ethiopia. His time was 2 hours, 20 minutes, and 6 seconds. Wow. That's running fast over a 26-plus mile course, isn't it? But after all the people, especially press people, had left the arena where the Olympians had run in, finishing up, finishing up, it was quite a feat just to finish that race of the marathon, they were, there were a few people still left in the stands. They were getting ready to pack up and leave. When all of a sudden someone shouted, there's another runner coming. And it was Stephen Akwari. He limped. He didn't run. He limped into the stadium. When he was being interviewed, his word leaked out of the stadium and got back to the ceremony for the ones who had won the medals, the press went back over and one asked the question, why didn't you quit? This is what he said. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish a race. You want to finish the way the Lord wants you to? Well, you can right up until the end. 
however long that is. It's awesome, isn't it, to be a follower of Jesus? To be able to put our confidence in Him and not be self-centered but be other-centered. To be Christ-centered. To be men and women who can exhibit faith through difficulty. And people who have a vision for our lives beyond ourselves. There is a man by the name of Halford Luckock who was ruminating on Deuteronomy 1.11. This verse says, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you as He has promised you. That was a promise to the people of Israel. Do you know that can be the promise that we can claim from the Lord? That the Lord would increase us. All of us. There are probably 300 people in this room. 300 people committed to Jesus Christ whom the Lord could use to impact the world. Amazing. And this is what Mr. Luckock wrote after thinking about Deuteronomy 1.11. Life's greatest blunder is to live it one time when we can live it a thousand times through other people. One more quotation and I'm finished. By another great man of God, E. Stanley Jones. This man at the age of 83, listen to what he wrote. Some of you are 83 or more. You think you're done. Well, you're here. Thank God you're here. Listen to what he wrote. He said, there are scars on my faith, but underneath those scars there are no doubts. Christ has me with the consent of all my being and with the cooperation of all my life. The song I sing is a lit song. In other words, it's on fire. Not the temporary exuberance of youth that often fades when middle and old age sets in with their disillusionment and cynicism. No, I'm 83 and I'm more excited today about being a Christian than I was at 18 when I first put my feet Upon the way. You can do it. I can too. If we trust in the Lord. And he made this statement that corresponds to the statement that I began with from Bonhoeffer. Remember what Bonhoeffer said? He said, the righteous person lives for future generations. This is what Dr. Jones said. The wise man plants a tree in whose shade he himself will never sit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this morning, for the opportunity You've given us to worship You together. Lord, for this challenge You've given to me. Thank You, Lord, for the Word of God. Thank You how You have challenged my heart. And I pray there would be others in this room who would take the challenge to live for future generations. To deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow You, Jesus. In Your heart as we're finishing this morning. Do you feel that tug on your heart to have that kind of life? If so, just pray this simple prayer out of a sincere heart. Lord, I want to set you apart as my king in my heart. And I'm trusting you, Lord, to give me the power to live the kind of life that helps others live forever. Many generations. Lord, thank you. I ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you.